0: If you turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 27, and while you're turning there, maybe I should make a little clarifying note. You're like, uh-oh, here it comes. <laughs> I was supposed to preach, or, yeah, last Wednesday, but then uh, it was pushed to today, and then Pastor Brian preached from Psalms on Sunday, and then during staff meeting, he brought out Psalm 27 <laughs> during our staff meeting. I thought, oh, everyone's going to think that we're and I'm following and copying his notes, <laughs> But honestly, I was supposed to preach first, so let's keep that in mind. So Psalm 27. You know, you might be getting sick of hearing this, but I think it bears repeating, especially when we start talking through a psalm like this. We really live in some interesting times, don't we? I mean, we really do. And for for the most part, we could be honest, they're very unsettling. I mean, 2020, we had viruses and riots and fires and political turmoil. Oh, my. 2021's not really looking that better. Uncertainty really breeds fear in the unchecked heart. And the more that uncertainty comes up around us, that's the moment where we can stop and either live in fear or we can trust in the great purposes of God. And there's plenty of uncertainty out there right now, isn't there? You have political uncertainty, especially today. You have monetary uncertainty, jobs, health, loved ones, fill in the blank. There's a lot of uncertainty. And when things are uncertain, that's when the heart tends to worry because we want to know. Because things are uncertain by their very definition, we simply don't know. Well, in comes Psalm 27, which is the balm for the society As we live right now, you turn on the news and there's fear everywhere and they present the news in a way that gets you stirred up. We need the message of Psalm 27 and I'm going to read it in its entirety so we get the flavor of the chapter and then we'll go back and start breaking it down. So beginning with verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamped against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desires of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and as such, breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take, let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord very comforting psalm, isn't it? Just by hearing it read, it gives you that sense of peace that with the Lord, everything's going to be okay. And that's really what this is about. You see, I'm going to walk through some several steps. It's good to hear it all in one big passage, but there are some keys to the confidence that David has in the Lord. And he's brimming with confidence through this whole thing. And I want us to have confidence in these uncertain times. So the first point is that the knowledge of God overcomes our fear. The knowledge of God overcomes our fear. You see, David was no stranger to fear. He was no stranger to the causes of fear. In fact, when he was a shepherd, he encountered quite a lot of dangers. I remember the time in Scripture where uh, Goliath was doing his thing and breathing out insults against Israel, and everyone was terrified to face this man. And David comes up and says, I'll do it. Just shepherd boy. I'll I'll, I'll handle this guy for you. And Saul said, you're just a kid, and this guy has been a warrior since he was a kid. What are you going to do? And he said, well, when I was a shepherd, I had to protect the flock from lions and bears. I had to rip them right out of the mouth, the sheep right out of their mouths. I don't know. If I see a bear and he's got sheep in its mouth, I'm going to be like, well, that's one that is lost, okay, because I'm not going to try to rip that thing out of its mouth. David was a fearless guy, so he knew that even from a kid he fought dangerous things. As a king, he was crowned king and anointed to be king of Israel. Saul refuses to lay his claim down and then pursues him for years, trying to kill him. He was at war with neighboring countries and people groups, constant fighting, marked David's reign. He wanted so desperately to build a temple for the Lord, but he couldn't even begin to ask God if he could do it until God would bring the nation some kind of peace to his land. His own son, Absalom, tried to kill him and take the throne from him. That's pretty harsh. He was no stranger to the things that cause uncertainty and fear. He was even certain of spiritual things that cause danger and fear. In Psalm 19, he prays that God would ferret out any kind of secret and hidden sin that he wasn't even aware of in his heart because he knew that secret sin can turn into overt sin and be guilty before the Lord. He was a man that faced temptation, and he sinned, and he lived through the consequences of a lot of sin. David knows fear, but despite this, in Psalm 27, he asks these rhetorical questions, two rhetorical questions, and then makes two statements of faith. Verse 1, "'Whom shall I fear?' Whom shall I dread? My heart will not fear. In spite of this, I shall be confident. You see, David's knowledge of God conquered his fear. And it wasn't just head knowledge. He said, and we'll see this, he describes God in three different ways, but he refers to God as his God in each way. Head knowledge will only take you so far. It might give you Some extra points on a test or something like that. But when you're facing the uncertainties and trials of life, knowledge won't get you that far. We need more than head knowledge. In fact, he describes God in three ways. He said, God or the Lord is my light, He's my salvation, and He's the defense of my life. So let's start with that first one God is my light. We know it's true that light dispels the darkness, not the other way around. And it's no surprise that God and light are uh, mixed and uh, attached to one another through scripture. I mean, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And what was on the face of the deep? Darkness was on the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light. First thing that we have recorded. Words of God is, let there be light, and the darkness flees every single time. Psalm chapter 36 and verse 9 it says, In your light, God, we see light. Psalm 104 and verse 2, he covers himself or wraps himself with light. That reminds me of Moses when he's on Mount Sinai and he's listening to the word of the Lord and he's writing down the law of God and the Ten Commandments and he's just in such worship with God. He says, I just want to see you, God. Let me see you. I'm so enraptured by who you are. I want to see you. God says, that's not going to happen. You can't see my full glory. You see my full glory, you're going to die. So here's what I'm going to do for you, Moses. I'm going to tuck you in the cleft, this little cave of of the mountain, and I'm going to cover you with my hand. Now, God doesn't have a hand. He uses anthropomorphic terms for us, but he, he covers Moses up. And he kind of walks by Moses and sort of moves that, that veil, just, just a little tiny bit, so that Moses could catch just a glimpse of the backside of the Lord. And he comes off the mountain, and the people are like, put your face away, Moses. He was glowing. It was like nuclear glowing. It was so brilliant, so bright, that people were scared to death. And he said, cover your face. We can't bear, bear to see it. Well, he saw the light of Almighty God, and that light kind of rubbed off on him, and he had part of it on himself. But it gets even better than that. In this passage, Psalm 27 is the first time, in the order of the books that we have in the Old Testament, it's the first time that the Bible comes right out and says that God is light. It'll say that he has light, he wraps himself in light, he, he provides the light of truth. Here it says God himself is is light. And then the Bible takes it from there. John, 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And this is the great part. If you would turn to John chapter 1, we're going to see something even more amazing and more uh, about Christ Jesus, about the light of God through him. We'll start with John chapter 1. I'm going to read with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's talking about the Creator. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. I'll jump down to verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Who was the light? Jesus is the light. God is light. Jesus is light. Jesus is God. And so when we come by faith in Christ Jesus, we are beholding the light of God. And Scripture says that we can now behold the light of God with an unveiled face. We don't need to be like Moses and be covered up anymore because now we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. What? Why does David make such great pains to talk about God being light when well, we're talking about being afraid of our enemies? Well, it goes back to uncertainty, doesn't it? Uncertainty, falsehood, it all contrasts with the light. We all say we're stumbling around in the darkness. We use that all the time, just stumbling around in the darkness. You can't see very much. You ever hear something in the middle of the night? Not sure what it was. Then you were probably still sleeping, but your wife woke you up because they heard it and you didn't, and you're creeping around trying to figure out what it was that you heard in the middle of the night, and the first thing that you do to feel better about things is you turn on the light because now it becomes certain what's in your house or not in your house and it was just a weird dream or something like that. That's what God does for us. He is light. He's contrasting God with the darkness of uncertainty, and that uncertainty causes fear. So what's dark in your life right now? What is the darkness that is trying to exert in your heart fear instead of faith? You see, the light of God is here to reveal whatever it is that's skittering around in the dark. And when the light of God comes, the light of his truth, the light of his understanding in your situation, whatever it was, runs for cover because everything is exposed in the light of God. Now, we go through some uncertain times. Yes, God is light, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he tells you everything that's going on and why. You know, when we go through some troubling times, sometimes the first question that we ask is, Why, God, or why me? Which is probably the worst question we could ask. Those are the questions that God really doesn't like to answer very often just because he's God and we don't have the security clearance to know that. It's not a need to know, just trust God. But he gives us this light that we can walk around in certainty, though, and the certainty is God himself. He is the light. We don't just need a flashlight. We need the one, the source himself, to walk with us in the darkness And the uncertainty of times. If you're walking in some darkness, good news, God is light. And He's not just God, He's your God if you're here by faith in Christ Jesus. So He says that God is my light, but He also says that God is my salvation. And the Hebrew word for salvation is very closely related to deliverance. And who you deliver from, from your enemies. And often, I mean, I know David in this passage is talking a lot in military terms. I mean, you can see it in verse 3. He talks about hosts that encamp around him. And I'm sure he has that in mind as well. But, I mean, doesn't it seem like when you walk through dark times and there's things that, that wage war and try to exert fear into your life, it feels like you're surrounded by enemies, doesn't it? It feels like they're encamped around you, and there's really nothing that you can do about it. Even if you know what it is, there's nothing you can do. You need rescue. You need help. You need deliverance. You need God. He is salvation. But you see, there's a greater spiritual understanding here. Because I know David understood this. You can see this in in the book of Psalms, that we need our greatest deliverance, our need for greatest deliverance lies from sin and judgment and death. We need to be delivered from these things. And we know that uh, through Christ Jesus that we have that deliverance. He is our salvation. But you know what? Let me, let me talk about that for a second. We say it a lot. I'm saved. I want to be saved. Are you saved? We have people who are saved. And we say the word saved so quickly and so often it becomes almost cliche. What do we mean when we say saved? What are we saved from? Well, there's a lot of thought out there about this, but let's look at scripture. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to look at this glorious salvation that we now have a part of. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1. Ephesians 2. I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read a few verses, and we're going to see what we're saved from, what we need salvation for. So Ephesians 2, start with verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's a pretty pretty definitive statement, right? You weren't just merely asleep. You weren't merely sick. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature here it is children of wrath even as the rest we were children of wrath we had nothing to expect but the wrath of god in judgment that's who we were that was our position in life this is what we need deliverance from and among uh, yeah verse four but god i love that but god (laughs) but god being rich in mercy Because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. Our greatest need for deliverance is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We need to be delivered from sin, from judgment, and death. That's ultimately. I would hate to live my life being delivered from physical enemies to wake up one day that I was never saved from being a children of wrath. What have I gained in this world? Nothing. I had a life of ease, life of comfort, maybe even some wealth, maybe in temporary happiness, to wake up now realizing that I missed the point the entire time. God is my salvation. We need Christ to save us. Call upon him if you need to be saved. If you've not trusted in Christ Jesus, call upon him while he is near. He will answer you. He will save you. But believer, if you're here and you've done this, Remember that you've been saved already from the greatest threat in your life. And now, if God can save you from sin, from death, from judgment, from his wrath, what can't he save you in this life from? It's so odd to me, and I fall into this trap all the time, where I'm willing to believe that God is willing to save my soul from sin and death, but I struggle with God saving me when I'm struggling in this world? How can I believe one and not the other? Now, again, I'm not saying that deliverance in this world means ultimate prosperity and all of our enemies are falling down before us and everything is great and hunky-dory. That's not necessarily true. God can do those things. And there have been times in your past where you've seen God deliver you from amazing things in your life, maybe even delivered you from bad decisions that you've made or delivered you from bad health reports or other things. But there are times that God causes us to walk through those. But we can still be like David and say, no matter what, God is. Is my salvation. I can be delivered from fear. The enemies may still be there. They may clamor and yell and do their thing and try to get me out of my state of peace with God, but I don't have to because he's my deliverer in this. And even if God allows the enemies of my life to take me out, I'm still with him. If I've lost everything else in this world and all I had was God himself, I have it all. That's what this is about. And that's why David could say, whom shall I fear? Don't be afraid, Jesus said, don't be afraid of the person or of the one who can kill the body and not kill the soul. We have to get our priorities straight. He says, God is my light. He is my salvation. These are the basis for his statements of faith in God. He also says that God is my refuge. Some of your translations might say he is the defense of my life. I really like that that phrase, the defense of my life, because the image is a fortress like a tower that's up on a mountain somewhere. It's like an impenetrable fortress. This is God. He's my fortress. I can run into the fortress and know that no enemy can penetrate this because I'm right with God. Because I'm with him. He is my, my my deliverer. He's my defense. He's the refuge of my life. Again, he's using military imagery here. The Proverbs 18 and verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Do you believe that about God? Do you believe that his name is a strong tower? That he's the defense of your life? So often, we don't do what David does here. Too often, I would think. When when the enemies surround us, when uncertainty rears its ugly head, and we start feeling the pangs of fear in our life, our first inclination tends to be, how do I fix this on my own? Well, praise God. He's given us a mind. He's given us willpower. He's given us strength. And we should do the things that we know are right. We have to live wisely in this world. But too often the focus ends up being completely on us and what we can do and not about God at all. And we're just spinning our wheels trying to make everything happen and keeping it all together, and it all comes crashing down. And so we say, oh, yeah, I forgot. God is my light. He's my salvation. He's my refuge. Why don't we do both? Why don't we put our trust in God and use the tools that he's given us to walk wisely in this world? That's the only way, though, that we can be confident like David here in uncertain times. It's like, who am I gonna fear? God is my light. He's my salvation. He's the refuge and defense of my life. What am I gonna be afraid of? I can almost see that. You know, I, I know this is poetic and the way he writes is very poetic. It's almost liturgical in the way that he says this, but you know, I, I tend to read it in my own voice, in my own personality, and I can just see him saying, Who am I afraid of? why am I so afraid? I remember walking through that in the past and I was terrified. Why in the world was I so afraid? Because we forgot God. We, we did not remind ourselves on who God is. And we have to do that often, don't we? Our minds are so forgetful. We have to constantly be bringing up who God is, his nature, his attributes, his power, his might, his goodness. In fact, he does that here. He says in verses 2 and 3, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. He's looking back to when God toppled his foes in the past and remembering the goodness of God in the past gave him the faith to move forward in uncertain times when his new foes come out of the woodwork to make him scared, to make him terrified. Look back at what God has done for you. Look back at your salvation. Recount the moment that you woke up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that day? Think about that day. Meditate on that day. What happened? What were the details? What did you hear? What were you going through? What was it at that moment when you woke up and said, I need God. I see my sin. I see the holy God. But when all hope was lost, Jesus was presented and I knew I needed him. Go through that. God didn't have to do that for you. He didn't have to do that for any of us. In fact, it would have been very fair for God to let us all slip away into eternity apart from him. But instead he lavished his love upon us. Remind yourself of those things. Remind yourself about the times in the past when God was strong for you. When he defeated enemies in your life. When he helped defend you against the bad decisions that we make. A lot of the times the these bad circumstances we go through, are awful. a lot of times we create them on our own through bad decision-making, and then we try to act like, oh, when did this happen? But God oftentimes shields us from consequences. Not always, but sometimes he does. Look back on those events to give you the faith to propel you forward. Yes, I remember he was my light, my salvation. He was the defense of my life. Who shall I fear today? No one. I'm going to trust God. So he says that knowing God like this gives confidence. I saw it before, and I know he will do it again. That's why he has these statements. I shall be confident. Do you know God like this? I pray that you do. Again, this is not head knowledge that we're talking about. This is definitely heart knowledge. This is not just some facts that we agree with with our brains. That won't do anything for us. We need this relationship with Christ, my salvation, my light, my refuge. So David says and teaches us in this passage that the knowledge of God overcomes our fear. Well, The second point is that the presence of God calms our anxious hearts. The presence of God calms our anxious hearts. Let's look at verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. I'm going to stop there. I love that verse so much. Do you see David's desire? Do you see his longing for God in this passage? Do you see? uh, I mean, he just breaks this thing down. He said, if I could have only had one thing that I could ask God, It's the only thing I really want in this life that could dwell in the house of the Lord, that could gaze upon his beauty. This heart for God is just pouring off the page that he has. And in fact, I think this is probably one of the most single-minded statements of purpose that you're going to find anywhere in the Old Testament. That one thing, if I could break it all down, I had nothing else, let it be this that I would dwell in the house of the Lord. So why does David have this single and obsessive, almost, longing for God's house? I mean, the glorious temple of Solomon wasn't even built yet. I mean, Solomon, I'm not sure if he was born yet at this time, but it wasn't even built. I mean, the house of God at this time was a tent. I mean, it was not like a Coleman pop-up that you throw in your backyard and, you know, you camp with over the weekend. It was a nice tent, but it was still just a tent. What was it about this house of God that he was so desperate to be there for? He says to gaze or that he would dwell at the beauty of God, that he would behold the beauty of God. That's what he wants. It's not about the temple necessarily. There is a little part of that, and we'll get into that in just a second. But his driving obsession is that he needs to be in the presence of God. He knows that this is what he needs. It's God himself that he's seeking. He knows that the presence of God is what our hearts truly need. It's the only thing that will settle our anxious hearts. But the question then remains, as a believer, why are we so anxious? It's a good question, isn't it? Because we deal with fear. We deal with anxiety. We deal with these things. We have to ask ourselves, Why? If we never ask that question, we'll never really get to the bottom of things. Well, the scripture talks often about these things. Um, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God said, who said, let light shine out of darkness. There's your Genesis 1-2. Is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God shines his light, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in our hearts, we are meant to gaze upon the glory of God. In our hearts, the problem is that we don't always gaze at the glory of God in our hearts, do we? Oftentimes, our gaze turns to other things. Right? That's where Jesus said in Matthew six, "Why are you so worried about what you eat and what you what you wear and the things that the Gentiles are all concerned about? You know God loves you. You know He takes care of the of the." The sparrows and and the the flowers of the field, and how well they're clothed. And you're worried about these kinds of things. Why? Get your gaze, that unnatural gaze off of the things of the earth, back to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying in this passage. Now, is it wrong to be concerned about having enough food in the fridge to survive? No, of course not. But when our gaze becomes unhealthy, That's when we replace the worship of God in our hearts for the worship of other things. Those other things are often called in scripture idols. We supplant the proper worship of God for the worship of something else in our life. Whatever that something else actually is. It could be the need for security. And when security is threatened, we freak out. We panic. We get filled with anxiety because my need for security has overwhelmed and over-encompassed or eclipsed, I should say, the worship of God in my life who cares about me, who loves me, who will never leave me, who will never forsake me. But our eyes went off of that and onto something else, and now that's threatened. Look at Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26. I want you to look at verse 3 for a minute. Isaiah chapter 26, look at verse 3. The the goal, though, right? So if we know that God has caused us or called us to be gazing upon the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and often our eyes turn away from that to other things, it's to get it back to where it belongs. And this is what God says in Isaiah 26 and verse 3. The steadfast of mind... You will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The steadfast mind, the mind that is focused upon God and the beauty of God and the glory of God, he gives that mind perfect peace. Now, I want us to be clear that when the Old Testament says the word mind, I don't want you to think brain. In the Old Testament, there's only really two parts to a human being when we're talking about these matters. It's the inner man and the outer man. And the inner man is often used for the words like heart and and mind and emotions and ambitions and those kinds of things are all really used synonymously to refer to internal stuff. So when when it says whose mind is stayed on you, I don't want you to think only of my brain must be constantly thinking about God. Of course that comes and that's important. It's about what's in our heart. What is the desire and love in our heart? Is it upon the glory of God? It was upon the things of this earth. Because if it's on the things of this earth, it'll very easily turn itself into anxiety. Turn itself into fear. This is why David says, that if there's just one thing I could ever get in this world, it's that I would go to the temple, be in the temple all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of God. And we've already seen that the glory of God is in the face of, of Jesus Christ. That's why Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing. By prayer and supplication, make your request to be known to God. 1 Peter 5, cast your anxieties upon him. He cares for you. Gaze upon the beauty of God. How do you do that, though? Well, How about this? How about we start with the word of God? This is where Christ can be found clearly, is the word. This is the exegeta. That God has given us of the Word Himself. This is God. We find Christ in the pages of Scripture. And you say, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, as my BFG is, is very accustomed to hearing, John 5.39, Jesus says that all scripture testifies about me. So all means all that means the Old Testament. It's all pointing to Christ. It's all demonstrating about Christ. It's illustrating Christ. It's prophesying about Christ. It's giving us types of Christ and the things that he would do. All of it, cover to cover, leads us to Christ. So if we want to gaze at the beauty of God, let's go to the Word. Let's fill our minds and our anxious hearts with God's Word. Oftentimes when people come to my office and they'll talk about anxiety that they're struggling with and some of the dark thoughts that start coming into their mind. Isn't that interesting how we use that cliche, dark thoughts? We automatically classify bad things as darkness, that's why God is light. And the first thing that I'll tell them is, well the only way you're really gonna stop a train of thought is by interrupting it somehow, use a spoken word. Put on a Bible tape or on, on CD or MP3 or whatever you have, get scripture blasting into your ears. And, and if you the, the, the noise in your head and the fears and the anxieties keep welling up, turn it louder. Blast that thing. Let the neighbors hear it. That's good. They should hear that, right? There's your evangelism strategy right there. My cure for anxiety is to turn the word of God nice and loud. You get to reach your neighbors for Christ, and you get to deal with anxiety at the same time. This is how you break trains of thought. This is how you gaze upon the beauty of God. You fill yourself with the word of God. This is why David says so desperately that he wants to be in the presence of God because he knows that the presence of God will calm his anxious heart when he's afraid. It's a reorientation from the things that make him afraid to the things that give him peace. Do we want peace? Then focus on the Prince of Peace. That's how this works. And I just want to make sure though that we know that in the Old Testament, particularly, because David talks about this several times here, to dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold his beauty, to meditate in the temple. So, you know, the Old Testament, the tangible worship and intangible the worship of God, they're not completely separate concepts. Right? People, when they wanted to be in fellowship with the Lord, they desired to be at the temple. They desired to make their pilgrimage to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. It was very much linked for David that the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Holy of Holies, all connecting to the worship of God. So I know that, yes, David longed for the presence of God 24-7, but he also longed to be in in the tabernacle of God as well. And I know we live in a different time. John 4, 23, Jesus says that, um, a time is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Got into a big debate. Well, the, the the woman tried to get into a big debate with Jesus about, well, you Jews say we should worship here, and we say you should worship here. Which is it? What do you say? Uh, stop. <laughs> so you're trying to get it off track. It's not a place. It's the worship of God. But I wonder if we've kind of swung a little too far a little bit. And we want to be worshipers of God without a love for the church. You know how hard it is lately for pastors to get their congregations to come back to church after the COVID lockdowns? Still a lot of empty churches because they've never cultivated a love for God's presence, not only individually in their own hearts and worship at home, but for the presence of God when we gather together as a body. I mean, you've admit this before, or maybe, maybe you can admit it now. There's something very special about worship when you gather with others. When we're singing together. We're praying together. We're listening to the word together. Even the act of looking up at the pulpit where the word is being proclaimed, there's something very special about that. We need one another in this. We need to come together often and develop a love for the church and coming to the church I think we should sing more. I think we should pray more. I think we should fellowship more. We should do it together. Because sometimes when we, oftentimes when we are wrestling with fear, we're wrestling with anxiety, we're alone. We feel alone. And it's like a natural human reaction. It's a sinful human reaction to pull ourselves away from everything. So you already start feeling alone. Then you actually are alone exactly what the enemy wants. You know, a lion, the devil is called a lion, right? He's the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You've seen the nature channels, right? You've seen the nature shows. You see the lion, you're cheering for the antelopes, but you know one of them is going to die, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have the program on TV. And they're chasing the herd away, and they pick away the weak, the sick, or the young. Pull it away from the herd, and then pounce on it, kill it. That's the tactic of the evil one. He wants to pull away those who are weak and struggling in their faith and not with the group, not with the fellowship of believers because when we gather together and we pray with one another and encourage each other, we realize you're going through that too. Let's pray. Or maybe you've been through a situation and now you're in a position to minister and pray to others and encourage them from the word. It's the worst thing we can do is pull away. And that's partly why I think David has this longing for the temple of God or for the tabernacle of God. So we, we know that, that, that um, the knowledge of God will overcome our fear. And we see from David that it's the presence of God that will calm our anxious hearts. And it's the presence of God that calms us. He says there's no way he'll be in trouble When he's with God, look what he says here in verse, let's look at verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me, hide me in his tabernacle where his presence is. And he gets even more personal. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. That secret place where people were not allowed to go because only the high priest can go in there once a year, that secret place. Now, he's not saying, I'm just going to walk in there and hide. That would be bad. He's more speaking about that presence of God when I'm with his presence, and I know I'm in his presence. I've been calling upon him. I've been earnestly seeking after him. I'm in the word. Then I know that he'll hide me. He'll care for me. In fact, he says in verse six, and now my head will be lifted up Above my enemies around me. When you're trying to hide from enemies, what do you do? Right? Sometimes you might do that in the store if you don't want to talk to somebody. You duck around a corner or something, right? That's what you do when you want to hide. Because you're afraid or something. You don't want to have that conversation with somebody. Or or maybe you don't want somebody to see you. Or you're afraid of something. We duck instant. It's like an instinct. We duck. And here he says that in God's presence, my head will be lifted up. I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to duck for cover because I know that God has me. He's got me covered. He's concealing me. Come what may, God is with me. I have confidence walking with him. My head is lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes. I will sing praises to the Lord. How hard is it to shout for joy when you're living in fear? Not going to happen. And if it is, it's fake, and everyone can see right through it. (laughs) When you're delivered from your enemies, or you're not at least walking in fear, you're walking in the confidence of God, you're in the presence of God, you're in the word of God, you're going to shout with joy. You're going to sing praises to God. Isn't that what this world needs around us? When things are dark, when things are scary and they're uncertain, you're shouting for joy. Joy, not not happiness necessarily, joy. It's okay to admit that what you're walking through isn't pleasant, but you have the joy of the Lord in your heart. People see that. It's the first thing that people want to do when they lock churches down is to keep them from singing. Because there's something beautiful about singing. It's a joyful thing that comes from inside of us. And it comes from being in the presence of God. The world needs to see that. It's odd to them. There's a lot of things, most things about the Lord are very odd to the world. Think about that. Things are scary, things are bad, and you're singing joyfully. You're humming a hymn as you walk around your neighborhood or something. And you just have a smile on your face like, what is wrong with you? Don't you know what's going on around you? There's a riot going on over there. Yeah, I know now? Well, there's your opportunity now. The door is thrown wide open for you to talk about where your joy comes from. So often, evangelism techniques and strategies are focused on how to get the door open. Just live like a joyful believer. Sing praises to God in the midst of trouble. Walk in his presence. Be in his word. That's that's noticeable. The door gets thrown wide open. If they, they fluff you off, so be it. That's okay because your head is lifted high above your enemies and you're still shouting for joy. I wish that we really would get a hold of this. And I think men struggle with this so often about singing out loud. I mean, David was a very expressive worshiper. He's dancing in front of the ark, it's being brought before a back, back home where it belongs. And, and, you know, he's kind of ridiculed a little bit for that. He didn't care because he had the joy of the Lord, he was grateful for God. And that's what happens when you're in the presence of God. Keep your head up. Next, moving on to the next point, though, our prayer, very related to it, our prayer for God's presence is always answered. Now, you may say, okay, this point doesn't follow the same kind of grammatical or rhetorical as the other, where we said knowledge of God, calms our fears, anxious, you know, this one says our, our prayer for God's presence. Well, I, I wrestled with this, trying to make it all flow exactly the same, and I was getting a little frustrated about that, but then I thought, well, maybe I'm trying to force this. Because if you look at verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 14, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Verses 1 through 6, God is being spoken of in the third person. It's very confident, very triumphant, very joyful. And then you get to verse 7, and now David is talking about God In the first person, he's speaking very directly to God. And it's more of a prayer to God. And so I figured, let's just keep with the flow of the way this passage is going. So our prayer for God's presence is always answered. Verse 7, he's praying. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. You know, he starts with verse 1 with great confidence in God. He ends with verse 6, with seeking the presence of God. Then he begins with verse 7, with seeking the presence of God. And then he ends in verse 14, with great confidence in God. He knows that it's the presence of God that calms his fears, his anxious heart. So now I need to start praying for it earnestly. He's looking for it. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me. And answer me. The voice that shouts and sings to him in worship, that we saw in verse 6, can be confident that the Lord will hear that same voice when they pray. When you're just praying for help and you're not worshiping the Lord, you're not in the presence of God, you're not in the word of God, you know what your prayers begin to sound like? I know at least for me, I'll always speak for me, they start sounding like a laundry list. Dear God in heaven, I need this, keep us safe, watch over my family, bless my job, bless this, in Jesus' name, amen. And we throw that in Jesus' name, amen, as like a little incantation or something like that. That's what the prayers begin to sound like. How do you know that God hears that? He could. And oftentimes you've prayed that way, and despite you, God was was, was blessing you anyway. But how do you get the confidence to know that God hears you? It comes from being in the presence of God. comes from being in the word of God. When you're joyfully shouting before God. When you're singing and you're in worship and you're in fellowship with the saints. You're reading and seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then you pray. There's no doubt in your mind that God hears you pray. Verse verse 8. God instructs him, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Speaking to the Lord means seeking the Lord. What David does in verse 4, he's instructed to do in verse 8. Guys, this, ladies and gentlemen, this is not checkbox Christianity. Well, I read my Bible. I prayed. Uh, I turned on Christian radio, now maybe God will hear me when I pray. It's not what this is all about. Checkbox Christianity is about works and trying to appease God somehow so he'll show favor. And Lord help you if you forget to check one of those boxes. Because now maybe God will be mad he won't do what, he, what I ask him to do in my prayers. This is not checkbox Christianity. This is a heart that seeks after God. This, the singular focus that David has that's in the word, that's shouting joyfully for God, that's praising and bringing prayers and supplications to him. It's about a lifestyle. This is what David is doing. And over and over, the scriptures call us to seek him. Deuteronomy four twenty nine: Seek. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you seek him with all your heart. It's echoed in Jeremiah 24. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Call upon him while he is near. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will. Find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And you might be thinking, well, sounds like you're a free will guy. Nothing to do with free will. If you hear by faith in Jesus Christ, that's because God sought you first. He sought you first, and he put a heart to seek after him inside of your heart. And you were motivated by the prompting of the Spirit to call upon him and seek him. If you're here and you're not saved, you haven't asked God to forgive you of your sins, and you you say, well, what about me? Do you want to seek God? Then seek him. If you feel the call, you hear the Holy Spirit calling you to seek him, seek him, call upon him, and he'll save your soul Verse 9, we got to move through a little bit quicker now. You knew that was coming, didn't you? You're looking at your watches. You know, he's getting to this point where he's like, I'm desperate to seek God. Now I'm praying to seek God. God's presence is, the prayer for God's presence is always answered, right? And this is what David does. I want you to see in the next couple of verses, David's, the the flickers of despair a little bit in his heart and how David responds to it. Look what he says in verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away of anger. He's like, "Uh, I'm afraid you're going to turn me away. Don't do that, God. But then he reminds himself, you have been my help. He turns that initial flicker of fear into a statement of faith, which is something that God has done for him in the past. Don't turn away from you. You've been my help. He does this all the way through the Psalms. Uh, you have been, uh, Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's not going to abandon us. How can the God of our salvation abandon us? He wouldn't be my salvation. So what David is doing here is kind of reminding us that walking in the presence of God and, and walking in confidence with the Lord doesn't mean that we won't struggle with a little bit of doubt occasionally. What he is doing, though, is showing how we combat these things. We're calling upon the presence of God. Don't hide from me. Don't turn away. I need you to be looking upon me always. You've been my help. It's always answered. The prayer for God's presence, one of those prayers that God always, always answers. There's some prayers that we pray that God doesn't always answer. You want a prayer that God will answer. It's God, look upon me. Let me be in your presence. My father and mother have forsaken me, verse 10. But the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. I need to have the road plowed ahead of me a little bit, God. If I'm going to walk through this, I trust in you. This is what he's saying. And then verse 13. We're going to jump to our last point, verse 13. Faith. In God's goodness gives us confidence for today. I love the way he ends this. He ends it on such a triumphant note. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David is strongly convinced that the Lord will come to his rescue. Do you believe that the Lord will come to your rescue How confident are you? Because if you don't have confidence in the Lord for these things, you will despair. You will turn, that anxiety will reign over your heart. You'll go into depression and you'll struggle. Believe that God will rescue you. But we have to kind of walk through this passage, don't we? We have to start with reminding us of the knowledge of God. We have to be in the presence of God and earnestly seek him, being in the word, fellowship of believers. We need to be praying for God's presence continually. When we're doing those things, we can have faith in God's goodness and not just some metaphorical goodness in the land of the living, the here and the now. God's goodness may not always mean that we get everything we want to see happen around us. It might mean that God continues to have us walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But we'll fear no evil because I know he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. I call out to the Lord. I call out to his presence. And now I have faith in his goodness. And it's going to come now. And if that means that God just gives me enough strength to get to the next day, praise God. I'll deal with tomorrow when it comes. But as of now, I'm going to trust him right now that God will come to my aid, that he will strengthen my faith, cause me to call upon him, see him in his word clearly, and get me to the next day. And then after that, we'll worry about the next day, and then the next day. And then you turn back, and you see that this was the year that the Lord has made. And we rejoiced and were glad in it. I would have despaired. And then he ends with, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait for God. He can be trusted. He can be counted on. Don't despair When things are uncertain, use this as an opportunity to grow closer to God every day and let His presence calm your anxious heart. Pray for it. Seek Him and believe that you'll see His goodness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the sure and certain hope that we have in this passage. You, O Lord, are amazing. So great and awesome that you are, and yet you stoop down to be with us. That you want to be our light. That you want to be our salvation. That you want to be the refuge of our life. That you call us to seek you. What a grace that is, Lord. Help us never to take that for granted. I pray for us, Lord, as we walk through uncertain times and uncertain years, Give us the confidence that only comes from you. Help us to walk in faith and not in fear and trust in your goodness. May you take, uh, may You go with us, Lord, this week. I pray you would uphold these people as they go about their lives and their jobs and their homes and all the things that they do, that you would bless them, that you would give them the joy of the Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.